Okay, well, good morning and welcome to the first seminar in the Tough Questions seminar stream. Each year at New Day for many years, we have tackled here for one hour at half past 11 some of the questions, some of the objections that people raise with Christians when perhaps you say, well, you know, I went to church on Sunday or I'm a Christian, and then they'll ask questions like, for example, well, if there's a loving God, how can God allow suffering? We'll look at that on Wednesday, tomorrow here in this. Or maybe they might say, yeah, okay, well, it's all right for you, but I'm an atheist. That's what we'll be looking at on Friday morning here. So we've looked at objections, and we're going to continue to do that throughout this week, all the way through until Saturday, uh, five mornings But this year also, it might be that you have questions yourself. You're here at New Day, and you're asking some of these big questions. And so the format of the seminar will be that our speaker, who I'll introduce this morning's speaker in just a moment, will speak for around 40 minutes or so, 45 minutes. Then we'll have 15 minutes of Q&A. We have microphones here, and here you can queue up. You can ask any question. Then we'll finish at 12.30 on the dot. So if you're wondering, when can I leave? Please stay with us until half past 12. We promise we'll finish bang on time. And then our speaker will come down and take questions over here on the floor. If you want to stay and ask more questions one-on-one, our speaker will stand down here. But if you have uh, a a need, you want to be prayed for, something to do with what's come up in the seminar, we'll have some ministry team, and they'll be down here to my left, and you can come forward and you can receive prayer if you want to. So that's the format of the seminar. just remains for me to introduce this morning's seminar and our speaker. This morning's seminar is transgender question mark. And uh, you may or may not know that for the last six years, we have run a seminar here on homosexuality. And for all six years, we've had different speakers, but all of those speakers have been people who said, you know what? I have only ever been attracted to people of the same sex as myself. And I'm also a Christian. And we talked about, how does that work? What does the Bible say about homosexuality? So Andrew Bunt, who's standing on my right and who's our speaker this morning, he was here last year with David Bennett talking about that subject as someone who says, yeah, actually, I experience same-sex attraction. Now, because of the age you are and because you live in Europe, you don't need me to tell you that the question or questions about transgender are absolutely massive in society generally right now but particularly in youth culture. And I'm really delighted that Andrew, who's from Hastings, serving our church in Hastings, I heard Andrew speak on this subject recently, and I was so excited, I thought it was so fantastic, that immediately I emailed him and said, is there any chance you could come and speak to us on this subject at New Day? I'd like you to give an enormous New Day welcome to Andrew Bunt. Welcome. Thank you very much and good morning. Thank you for coming along, for giving this hour to wrestling with what Adrian has said is just one of the big kind of cultural questions and topics of discussion and debate of our day. We all know that transgender is a topic you kind of can't really avoid these days. We hear about it all the time in news stories, in popular media, you know, TV, film, music, even just probably in our daily lives, maybe in a school context, in a college context, in workplace, just in our local community. We know this is a, a huge topic at the moment in the society and the world in which we live. 
And it's one of those topics, isn't it, that if people know you're a Christian, they assume you might have certain views on this. People think, yeah, we know what Christians think about kind of LGBT stuff. And if someone finds out you're a Christian, or even just finds out you were here at New Day, a Christian festival, they might say, well, okay, so what does God think about trans people? There are some really big, really tough questions that kind of come up when we start to think about a topic like transgender. And we want to be equipped. We want to think about those questions ourselves. Many of us will have those questions ourselves and think, actually, yeah, what would God say in this situation? We want to be well equipped for ourselves and to answer our friends when they ask these questions. But, you know, actually, the topic of transgender is far more than a big topic out there in the world. Actually, for many of us right here today in the Big Top, this will be a, a big topic for us, ourselves, in our own lives. This will be a real-life thing for many of us here. It might be a real-life thing in our very own life, our very experience of life. That it might be that we have questions about our own gender identity. It might be that actually it's a big thing for us, a real-life thing for us, because people we know and people we love, close friends, family members, maybe for them this is a real-life thing that affects their daily experience. We know this is a, a real-life thing. Maybe you, like me, have had a time in your life when your internal sense of gender, so whether you're a man or a woman or neither, didn't actually match up with what your body, so your kind of biological or appointed sex, seemed to say. You see, there was a time in my childhood when I really believed that internally I was a girl, even though my body seemed to say I was a boy. I remember it so clearly because I remember being terrified that one day I would fall pregnant, not knowing how these things work, clearly, and that then my big secret would be found out. I kind of decided I would never get married, I'd live with my parents all my life, because I was terrified one day someone would find out, actually, I'm a girl and I'm trapped in a boy's body. Maybe you've had that kind of experience. Well, for me, actually, I, as I've grown up, those feelings have gone away, they've abated, and that would be a really common experience. Lots of us in this tent would have had an experience when we were a child, or maybe now in our teenage years, and we've experienced that sense of, my body says one thing, but I feel like another. But many of us will find that as we grow up, that actually something kind of naturally goes away. But maybe you're here and that was your experience in childhood, and maybe that's still your experience now as you're going through teen years, as you're coming into adulthood. Maybe actually you find yourself with a male body, but actually you feel that you're a woman. Or, or maybe actually you've got a female body, but you don't really feel you fit in the man boxes or the women boxes. You're not quite sure uh, where you are. You're not sure who you feel you are. Maybe you identify as transgender or as non-binary, or as genderqueer, or as genderfluid, maybe actually you wouldn't identify as any of those specifically, but you just think, I'm not really sure actually what my gender is. Maybe you're just questioning, actually, who am I in gender's terms? And so for many of us, this is a real-life topic. Many of us in our own lives and the lives of those around us are experiencing this as a real thing. And so I want to actually start by saying, if you are here today, and this is a real-life thing for you, I want to start by saying thank you so, so much for coming to this seminar. Thank you for being brave and coming to listen to this, because you know, I know what it's like to sit in a Christian context and to feel talked about. Not so much from the trans side, but as a gay guy, a same-sex attracted guy, I know what it's like to sit in a place just like this and hear a person talk about me. I want to say thank you so, so much for coming today. This is real for you. I don't want you today to feel talked about. We're exploring this topic together. We're kind of talking together, as it were, exploring what does God have to say to us. And actually, I want to start with the most important thing. If you take away nothing else other than this, this is the most important thing to take away. If you're here today and you're trans, or you're non-binary, or genderqueer, 
However it might be you identify, you need to know before anything else that God loves you. God loves you. And you need to know that I and we as God's people, we love you. And God is so, so thrilled that you are here today, this morning, in the big top, if this is a real, real life thing for you. And you need to know that nothing I'm going to say is going to change the fact that God loves you, okay? There are no ifs or buts coming in what I'm going to say which are going to change that fact. There are no exception clauses I'm going to put in. And in fact, if I say something which leaves you feeling I don't think God loves me, then I've done a bad job. Because God loves you. He loves you right now as you are. And he is delighted that you are here. And he's longing to meet with you. And my real prayer for today is being, especially for those of us who this is a real life thing, that all the way through this morning, we will know the closeness of God and we will actually experience the love that God has for us. And so what we're going to try and do this morning is we're going to ask, what should a Christian response be to transgender? For someone who wants to follow Jesus, who loves Jesus, what does it mean to respond as Jesus would respond? And we're going to do that in three parts, in heart, in head, and in hope. A heart response, a head response, and then a hope response. But actually, before we can even start to think about responding, we've got to make sure we understand. You can't respond to something well if you don't really understand. So let's just make sure we've got a working understanding of what we're talking about. And even that can be a bit difficult. difficult. Transgender is a a very complex topic. There's quite a lot of variation in ways different people speak about things and different understandings people have. But generally speaking, we've got to start by understanding two concepts. The concepts of biological or appointed sex and the concept of gender identity. So your biological sex is the identification as either male or female, kind of based on what the body says. So it's based on our physical anatomy, our gonads, that's our reproductive system, and our sexual anatomy. And also our genes, what the chromosomes in every single cell of our body says. And for the vast majority of people, the body is clear as to whether it is male or whether it is female. There's a very small number of exceptions to that case. People who might have intersex conditions. Some intersex conditions leave actually genuine ambiguity about whether someone is male or whether it is someone female. And that's actually a slightly separate topic. So some of the response would overlap with what we say. Some would be a bit different. We might come back to it in Q&A if you want to. But for the majority of people, biological sex, as male or female, is clear from the body. But then also we need to understand gender identity or experienced gender. That's the individual's kind of own personal internal sense of being a man or being a woman or maybe being neither. It's what you feel inside. You could say biological sex is what the body says. And then gender identity or experienced gender is kind of what the mind says or what the internal self says. And for most people, those two things kind of line up, they go together. Most biological males feel like men. Most biological females feel like women. But for some people, there can be a genuine experience of a disconnect between those two things, or of a difference, of a a tension, a clash even, that the body says one, but actually the mind or the internal self says something else. And that can be a really very genuine experience for people. That's just how people can experience life on earth. And so when we talk about transgender, that's a very broad term which covers lots of different experiences of and expressions of that kind of disconnect or that disagreement between what the body says and what the mind says, between biological sex and gender identity. And it's a very complex thing. There's very many different experiences of that, but that broad term covers many different uh, experiences, many different facets of that. 
And then for some people who experience that disconnect between biological sex and gender identity, that can cause really very genuine and acute distress. It can cause a real sense of pain and suffering, and that can lead to a kind of a medical diagnosis of gender dysphoria. You might have heard that term because that's also used in this conversation. Gender dysphoria is the, the medical term for the distress caused when there is a disconnect or an incongruence between biological sex and gender identity. And gender dysphoria, again, can be a very genuine experience for people. Not something they choose and they're not trying to be different, they're not trying to stand out from the crowd. It's how they experience life and can be incredibly, incredibly painful, debilitating even, actually, in the experience of life. And sometimes the two terms, transgender and gender dysphoria, are used synonymously, so meaning the same thing. That's a bit debated, though. Some people say you don't need to have gender dysphoria to be trans. Some people say you do. And we're going to kind of talk about a bit of both as we go through. And so really what we're talking about with transgender is almost like a conflict of identities. Actually, it's the answer, well, who do you, how do you find who you are? Is it what your body says or is it what your mind says? What do we listen to? Which way do we live if there's a tension and a conflict there? And so that gives us a bit of understanding, a working understanding at least, so we can begin to think, how should we, if we're a follower of Jesus, respond to this? Or how does Jesus want to respond to this experience of life? And so we're going to look at the heart response, the head response, and the hope response. And we start with the heart response. I think the most important place to start, really, the most important bit, we need to ask the question, well, how should our hearts respond? In the sense of how should our hearts feel, how should we feel towards people who are trans or people who experience gender dysphoria? And actually, to answer that question as a Christian, you kind of take a step back and you say, well, how does God feel about people who are trans or people who experience gender dysphoria? Because if we're a follower of Jesus, we want our heart to uh, be shaped to be like Jesus' heart so we express his heart. And actually, of course, I've already answered that question. I said that's the most important bit, so I put it at the front. How does God feel about trans people God loves trans people. God loves non-binary people. God loves people who experience gender dysphoria. And how do we know that? How can we be so sure of that? Well, I think actually you could look right through the Bible and find all sorts of evidence for the fact that that's true. But what I find most helpful to think about is to think about the example of Jesus. You know, Jesus is God come to earth. When we see Jesus relate to people, we see the heart of God in action. It's one of the clearest places we see the heart of God expressed and we can look and see how does God feel. And many people in our world believe that God hates trans people. In the same way that many people believe that God hates gay people. I think it's, a, it's an obvious thing, of course, God does. But I think when you look through the Gospels, the bits in the Bible that tell us about the life of Jesus, I don't think you find Jesus outright hating anyone. That's just not where he's like. He, he never seems to do that. Many people think he does, but actually what you do, what you find in the Gospels, there are times when Jesus gets kind of deeply frustrated. Times when actually Jesus maybe even gets angry, really. But the people he gets angry with are the hypocritical religious leaders. Jesus, you read through the stories, he gets angry with people who say, do this, and then they go and do something else. Or people who judge others but don't actually judge themselves for doing the same things. That's what Jesus objected to. Even there, though, actually, I don't think there's any evidence Jesus doesn't love them. I think he still loves them and wants them to come to him for salvation. And then it's really striking in the Gospels, when Jesus meets the people who, in his day and age, everyone assumed God hated, so in his day and age, that was prostitutes and tax collectors and lepers, and everyone thought, yeah, of course God's going to hate those people. When we see God on earth, Jesus meeting them, he doesn't hate them. 
He loves them. He accepts them. He embraces them. He eats with them. He goes and stays in their home. He prioritizes them. He shows in his very actions that he loves them. And so the people that we easily assume God hates, actually Jesus shows us God loves them. Jesus shows us that God loves trans people. In the heart of God is a deep, deep love, a deep, deep love for every single human he's ever created and a deep heart's desire that they would come into a relationship with him and find true fullness of life, find the very best life which can only be found in and through relationship with him. So if you're here today and you identify as transgender, don't believe the lie that God doesn't love you. He loves you. If you're here today and you've got a close friend or family member who's trans, don't believe the lie that God doesn't love them. God loves them. God loves trans people. And I think also we can show from the Bible, God has compassion on people who are experiencing the pain of gender dysphoria. For some people, that, that distress and that disconnect between biological sex and gender identity is really acute, really strong, really painful. One of my friends who lives with really quite acute gender dysphoria, who's biologically female, um, told me that kind of from the age of four, they generally thought they would grow up to be a man. They tell me that actually, when I said to them, what's it like to live with gender dysphoria? They said they look in a mirror, and it's like the person looking back at them isn't really them. And actually, they said they just find it so distressing to see themselves in a mirror and see that their body doesn't line up with how they feel inside that they can't even do that. They don't even do that. Or another of my friends who's biologically male is now transitioning actually to live as a woman. He experiences such acute gender dysphoria and told me that actually they just feel this innate desire to chop off bits of their body. There are parts of their body which make them so distressed, so pained, so upset, actually they just think, I just want to chop them off. They told me that on multiple occasions they've sat in hospital car parks thinking about doing that, chopping off bits of their body, and they're sitting there knowing the doctors will be ready to help them with the bleeding afterwards. That's the level of pain and distress and suffering that some people with gender dysphoria experience. And I think Jesus responds to that with compassion. Read through the Gospels, you'll find any time Jesus meets people who are suffering and who are distressed and who are experiencing pain, he responds with compassion. There's this word the Gospels use, which may have been moved deep within himself, deep within his belly. Jesus feels for these people and loves these people, and he, it's almost like he feels the pain with them. Jesus has deep, deep wells of compassion for people who experience the pain of gender dysphoria. And so how should we, if we're a follower of Jesus, respond to people who are trans or people who have gender dysphoria? We should respond as God responds, with hearts of genuine, genuine love and hearts of compassion. You know, compassion means suffering with, kind of entering into the pain with someone, weeping with someone, actually, acknowledging the deep, deep pain. We're called first and foremost to love to express compassion, to express the heart of God. People get to experience God through us. So a Christian response on the topic of trans has to start with the heart response, a heart of love and a heart of compassion. And then there we should move on to a head response. How should our heads respond in the sense of how should we think about transgender? How do we understand this? How do we think through these things? And this, of course, is where many of those really big tough questions we know related to the question come up. Questions like, well, are people born in the wrong bodies? 
Questions like, should there even be a binary, an and or, an either or of man and woman? Questions like, should someone who experiences acute gender dysphoria transition to living line with their gender identity rather than their biological sex? And these are huge and complex questions. We won't be able to tackle all of them today. But I think underlying each of those questions is a fundamental topic, a fundamental thing, is the topic of identity and the question of who am I? Transgender experience is often presented as individuals finding their true selves. Now they've realized who they are, they've admitted who they are, now they're expressing that, they've found their true identity. It's an answer to the question, who am I? And who am I is a good question. It's a human question, it's a question we should ask, we're meant to ask, we need to ask, actually. As humans, we need a solid, secure sense of who we are in order to thrive in life. And culture tells us rightly that when we find who we are, the way to true life, the way to our best life, is always to embrace who we are and then to live that out in how we live. And in fact, you may have noticed this recently, this story was there in Toy Story 4. You've seen Toy Story 4, we met the new character Forky. I love Forky. Forky is a, a fork or a spork, actually, who the little girl Bonnie takes from the trash, the rubbish, and makes him into a toy. And there's this great scene in Toy Story where Forky thinks that he's still trash. And he wants to keep jumping back in the bin, because obviously, as trash, he should be in the bin, and that's where he's going to find his best life. What he doesn't realize is he's no longer trash. He's now a toy, because Bonnie has made him to be a toy. And Forky has to go on this journey of learning you're not trash anymore, you're a toy. And because you're a toy, you don't find your best life in the bin. You find your best life by bringing joy to children, because that's what toys are meant to do. He shows us that to find our best life, we have to live out who we really are. That's a totally true thing that culture tells us. When you find who you are, you've got to accept that and embrace that and live it out in order to find real life. But I think there is a problem in what culture does tell us. You see, we're so encouraged to ask this question, who am I? But we don't first ask the most important question of, how do I find who I am? Until you answer, how do I find who I am, you can't answer the question, who am I? That's the thing we in our culture don't tend to do. We just take it for granted. And that's the thing where we actually need to think about it. How do I find who I am? How do I find my identity? And what the culture around us tells us, and this feeds into a situation or a topic like trans, it tells us we find our identity inside of us, something we can call the internal identity narrative. You look inside yourself, you find your feelings, you find your desires, and that is the true you. That's who you really are. That's the, the real you living inside. And therefore, it doesn't matter what anything external says. Therefore, it doesn't matter what your body says, doesn't matter what your community says, doesn't matter what tradition or history says. Actually, the real you is the you inside, and that's the only thing that matters, the only thing that can dictate that. And therefore, the narrative tells us we should embrace who we are inside, express that externally how we live, and that will be the route for us to find our best life. And that's very much how transgender is thought of in the society around us, the culture around us. And you see that exact narrative in the coming out stories of transgender people, transgender celebrities especially. So one example would be Josie Tota. You may recognize Josie Tota, she identifies as a trans female and was an actor in the final season of Glee uh, in the Netflix uh, series Champions and was the guy, um, played Peter Parker, uh, sorry, played Seymour, a friend of Peter Parker in Spider-Man Homecoming back in 2017. And just last year, Josie came out as trans in Time magazine and said this, 
I realized over the past few years that hiding my true self is not healthy. I know now more than ever that I'm finally ready to take this step towards becoming myself. I'm ready to be free. She's saying, I found my real self inside and it's ready to be free. I'm ready to be free. It's being trapped inside, but now it's free. The internal is becoming me. Or one of the most famous transgender people, Caitlyn Jenner, who lived for many years as Bruce Jenner, was a gold medal Olympic uh, athlete, and said this in an interview again in Time magazine a few years ago. Caitlyn said, I had a lot of conversations and kind of came to a revelation that maybe I should be honest with myself about who I am. And I should let that person, this woman who's lived inside me my entire life, finally have an opportunity to live. Caitlin said there was this woman that all my life had been trapped inside of me. The real me was there inside, the woman all along. And now I realize I've got to let her have a life. I've got to let her out. See, we're told our identity is inside, that who you really are is what you feel inside, regardless of what anything else. And therefore, you have to embrace that and express that to find your best life. Culture says that, but it never kind of questions, is that right? Is that the best way, the right way to make our identity? Because who says that's how we find who we are? On what authority is it based to say that who you really are is the you who is inside? And actually, the whole thing of building your identity internally, there's some really big problems with it. It just really doesn't work. You see, it's built on our feelings, built on our desires, but we all know our feelings and our desires can change. And so how can you build a solid, steady, life-giving sense of identity on something that at any minute can actually be changing? And we know our feelings and desires contradict. What if I really want this and I really want that, but they can't go together? Which one is the real me? Which one do I embrace and follow and live out to find my true life? It doesn't really work. We get all these problems, all these clashes. And actually, the really big problem is we just kind of don't really do this very accurately. We are quite selective. We say, look inside yourself, find your feelings and your desires, that's the real you. What if I look inside myself and I find kind of bad desires? Desires that I and others don't like. What if I look inside myself and I find a real desire to kill people and I'm really bloodthirsty? In our culture, we're not going to say, that's who you are. We are not to say anything else. If that's who you are, you've got to embrace that and express that. We wouldn't say that in our culture. You see, none of us really believe that anything we find inside of ourselves, any of our feelings and our desires really are us. It, it doesn't work as a way of building a solid, stable, life-giving sense of identity. Internal identity is full of problems. It, it, it can't work. It, it can't give us our best life. It can't give us fullness of life. And there's just no authority. Why do you choose, why should someone choose to prioritize their gender identity over any other feeling they might find inside themselves? Where's the authority behind the choice to identify or to prioritize our gender identity over our biological sex? Who says that we should actually do that? And so if internal identity doesn't work, we need something else. We still need to know who we are. How do I find who I am? Some people reject the internal, they go external. They go, okay, so who I am is based on what people will think of me. Often it's like there's this sense of criteria, and if I measure up to the criteria, people will think well of me. They'll think I'm a good person or a good Christian or a good son or daughter or a good child, whatever it might be, and they'll give me my sense of identity. That's also not very good, though, because what happens on the day when you don't measure up to the standards and suddenly your identity comes crashing down? 
or what happens when people change their mind of what they think about you, and again, your identity has come crashing down. It's not a solid, stable, a secure way of building a sense of who you are. The answer, what every human being needs, the only way we can really know who we are in a life-giving way is divine identity. That means an identity given to us by God. Because as humans, we are designed to get our identity from God. Which, if God made us, kind of makes complete sense. If God made us, it makes sense we should find our identity from him. In fact, again, Forky helps us here. Forky was no longer trash. He was a toy. Why was he a toy? Because his creator said he was a toy. His creator's intent and purpose, when Bonnie fashioned him out of the trash, she was making him into a toy. It makes sense that our creator should be the one who gives us our identity. And the Bible tells us that we as humans, our identity is given to us by God. It's given to us in what he says over us and in how he actually makes us. And it tells us that ultimately our identity is that we are created in the image of God. We alone as humans, out of all of the things God has made, we are made in the image of God. He says in the very first chapter of the Bible, God says, let us make humans or humanity in our image after our likeness. He's saying this is who you are. And so it's not based on what you feel. It's not based on what you desire. It's not based on what you do, what other people think of you. It's based on what God says about you and how God has made you. And the image of God is kind of the fundamental identity for any human. It's really important. In the Bible, it's the reason given as to why we shouldn't kill people and we shouldn't curse people, shouldn't speak bad words over people. It's because God says you are made in his image. And Genesis 1 actually goes on. The next verse goes on, so God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is fascinating. So God places our creation as either male or female, kind of in parallel, like train track lines, with our being made in the image of God. And that tells us some really, really important things. First, actually, it tells us that both males and females, men and women, carry the image of God. We are completely equal in worth and in dignity because of what God says about us, because of how God has made us. It also tells us that in the same way the image of God identity is given to us by God, in the same way our identity as male or female, as a man or a woman, is given to us by God. It's not something we have to create through our own performance. It's not something we have to kind of discover through feeling what's in. It's something that's given to us by God in the way he makes us and in what he says over us. And it means God speaks to us about who we are in our physical bodies. One of the ways that God tells us who we are is by giving us this body, which kind of totally makes sense when you understand how the Bible thinks about what a human is. You see, the Bible's view of what a human is, is that we are embodied beings. We are meant to be in a body. The body is a good thing. So it's not like the internal identity when the real you is trapped inside the body. And sometimes the body's a bit of a pain. and You've got to kind of morph it and change it to line up with what's inside. Actually, in the Bible, the body and what's inside, they, they go together. We're a holistic unit. We're meant to work together. The body's good. It's a gift of God given to us by him. And it's one of the ways he talks to us about who we actually are. God speaks to us through how he's created us. And again, if God created us, then it makes total sense that that would be the case. We should almost expect that to be the case. And of course, we know 
thanks to Forky, we know that living out who we really are, that is always the route to our best life. That is always the route to fullness and satisfaction. That is what most uh, grieves us, uh, the most life-giving way of living. And that means that the best thing for us, the Bible would tell us, is to live out our identity as either male or female in line with what our bodies say to us, what God says to us through our bodies. That's why if you read to the Bible, the Bible consistently expects biological males to live as men and biological females to live as women. There are no exceptions to that when you read through the Bible story. And actually, any kind of crossing of gender boundaries is viewed negatively in the Bible because the expectation is we're to live out our biological sex and the reason is that's who we are. God's given the identity to us and actually our best life, true life, uh, the most life-giving way of living is to live out who we actually, actually are. Which, of course, raises the question, well, what does that mean? What does it mean for a biological male to live as a man? What does it mean for a biological uh, female to live as a woman? Does it mean that men have to be tough and meat-eating and sport-loving and women need to be kind of quiet and to like crafts and pretty things? I don't think it means that at all. Actually, I think the answer to what does it mean to live as a man or what does it mean to live as a woman according to the Bible is really quite surprising to many of us. I actually think there are only two things the Bible says about what it means for a biological male to live as a man or a biological female to live as a woman. The first thing I think the Bible says, our biological sex, what the body says, is meant to be observable in the way we kind of physically present ourselves to others. And in a sense, that actually starts with our bodies. God gives us what we call secondary sex characteristics. So uh, breast or body hair and different distribution of muscle mass and fat across our bodies, which means our bodies just on their own, when they're, as God created them, actually express and kind of portray the fact that we are male or female. But then I think it goes beyond the body, it then goes into as well the clothing we wear, the kind of hairstyles we have, things which people look on are the things which we use to interpret whether somebody is male or female. The Bible says what it means to live out your biological sex is to externally present yourself in such a way that people recognize whether you are male or whether you are female. And the second thing the Bible says about what it means to live out your sex identity is that there are different roles for men and women in the context of marriage relationships and in the context of church. I don't think it talks beyond that. In marriages and in church leadership, there are certain roles which are male or female. But actually beyond that, I think that's all the Bible says. To be a man, a male man, you express your maleness in how you externally present to the world. And if you're married or you're in church leadership, there are different roles based on your sex. I think that's all it says. But of course, we know that there are all manner of other different, what we call stereotypes, kind of these boxes we put people in of a man's meant to be like this and like this and act like that and a woman's meant to be like this and act like that and do this stuff. Both in the world and in the church, we have lots of stereotypes of that's what it means to be a man. That's what it means to be a woman. I just think they're not there in the Bible. I've yet to find proof in the Bible that God says any of those things which we think, yeah, that's the male way and that's the female way, that's the guy thing, that's the girl thing. Actually, I think the Bible says this identity isn't something you have to earn or you have to create through performance. The Bible says God has given you this identity. It's who you are. Now you get to live it out, which is what the Bible says about Christian identity. It's who you are. And now live out the fact that that is actually who you are. And I think actually that lots of us, even if we don't maybe experience a serious level of gender dysphoria, I reckon lots of us live with that sense of not really making the standard as a real man or a real woman. 
Lots of us can associate with that. That's been totally me. I had that experience in my childhood, and I kind of grew out of that really kind of the sense of gender dysphoria, but actually in my adult teens, or my late teens, my adult years, I've always lived with a sense of, I'm not really a real guy. I just totally don't fit the mold. I don't fit in at all. And I've been so helped to realize, you know what? I'm not a man because I fit in a certain box. I'm not a man because I do certain stuff and I make my maleness. I'm a man because God says I'm a man. He says to me, the way he's created me, how he's created my body, he says, you, Andrew Bunt, you are a man. And because I know who I am, I'm then able to be how I am without changing that. So God says I'm a male, so I should present that in how I present myself and there are roles in marriage or church. But beyond that, it gives me the freedom to be how I am. And so for me, this has mean I've been able to embrace my love of musicals and of Downton Abbey and the fact that I like to be quite flamboyant sometimes and it doesn't change the fact I'm a man. I'm a man because God says I'm a man. It doesn't matter that I hate aggression, I'm not into sport, I get on better with girls than I do with guys. None of that changes the fact I'm a man because God says I am a man. I think lots of us would be helped, actually, if we got rid of the stuff the Bible doesn't say, which we put on each other of what it means to be a man or a woman. And realize, actually, what God calls us to do is to express our biological sex and our external presentation, to take in certain roles if we're married or if we're in church leadership. But beyond that, we have the freedom to be how we are because God says who we are. We're to live out, live out our biological sex. But of course, then the huge question is, what does that mean? What does the Bible's teaching there mean for someone who experiences quite acute gender dysphoria? For someone for whom actually the stereotypes aren't the issue, there is just such deep pain in the fact that their body says one thing, but their mind or their internal self says something else. What does this mean for those who experience gender dysphoria, for those who identify as trans? And there's a few things we could say here. I think one thing this means is the Bible shows us it's not possible to be born in the wrong body. The concept that it's possible to be born in the wrong body depends on the idea that the real you is inside and the body isn't the real you. And that's just not how the Bible looks at things. We've already seen the internal identity thing. It doesn't work. It's not actually a good way of working out who you are. And actually the Bible says your body is good. Your body is a gift from God to you to speak to you about who you are, not an annoying thing that gets in the way that needs to be changed or molded to line up with the real you. In biblical terms, it's not possible to be born in the wrong body because the body is part of the real us, part of our true, true self. But that, of course, is not at all to deny the fact that some people really genuinely experience themselves to be as if someone is trapped in the wrong body. It's not to deny the fact, don't mishear me, that some people really define their body says one thing, but actually their internal sense of self says something else. And that can be very, very painful. And that's why a Christian response can't stop with the head response. It has to go on to the hope response. The question now becomes, okay, if Jesus says that to us all and to trans people, where's the hope? How does Jesus offer hope? What does Jesus have to offer to people who are trans, people who are experiencing the deep pain of gender dysphoria? Ultimately, I think it's a question of suffering. These dear people are suffering, are experiencing pain and discomfort, distress. What does Jesus say in light of that? So here we'd want to apply what the Bible says about suffering. And actually, the Bible is wonderful, a wonderful resource in suffering. There are all manner of different ways it helps us to understand suffering, to walk through it, to kind of equip each other to walk through it. 
I think one of the really helpful Bible answers to suffering when it comes to trans and gender dysphoria is to think about the, the Bible's big story. How the Bible's big story both explains suffering and gives us hope even in the face of suffering. Because the Bible is a big book, 66 books actually in here. But from beginning to end, it's telling a story, a story of how God relates to us as humanity, a story of God's deep desire for us and to rescue us from the mess we got in. And it starts with creation where everything's as it should be. We're made in the image of God, male and female. Our bodies and our minds always work together, always align. And in the original creation, there was no pain. There was no distress. There was no sadness or sorrow. Everything was as it should be. But as you read on in the story, quite quickly you reach Genesis 3, what we call the fall. You see, the first humans, they don't trust God. When he says this is the way to the best life, they say, no, we think we know better. We're going to listen to this serpent guy. We're going to go over here. They don't trust God when he says, here's the way to your best life. That's what all of us as humans do. We don't trust God when he says, here's the way to the best life. And when they did that, when they sinned, they rebelled against God, God's perfect creation became damaged and marred and broken and all kind of brokenness entered the world. And at that point, suffering and pain and distress and sorrow and crying and weeping entered into the world. That's why we experience the world as we do. And God could have left it there. We were the ones who made the mess. We deserve nothing more. But he doesn't. The story continues and he sends his one and only son. He sends Jesus to be the redeemer, the one who purchases back, the one who fixes, the one who puts to rights. And you see, Jesus comes and whereas these guys didn't submit to God, he submits to God perfectly. He comes and when he dies on the cross, he takes upon himself all the sin, all the stuff that caused the problem, all the stuff that brought pain and suffering and distress into the world. He took it upon himself. He entered into the suffering in order to defeat the suffering. Because on the cross, he dealt with the problem that caused it. He dealt with sin. He destroyed sin. He disarmed it. He dealt with it. He did away with it. And now he holds in his hands the victory to destroy it. And so the story ends with a new creation. The story ends with a sure and certain fact that one day Jesus comes back. And when Jesus comes back, he comes back, he applies in full the victory that he has won. He undoes and fixes and mends all the brokenness that came when we as humans rebelled against him. And every bit of pain and suffering and distress will end. You know, the Bible says God himself will wipe away our tears on that day. You see, this story, when we face suffering, it explains why we experience suffering. It explains to us why we know we experience the world where some things are not as they should be. It's because we've corporately rebelled against God. I think it says God so, so loves us, he doesn't leave us there. He's promised that one day it'll all be right again. All because of what he's done, all because of his love for us. It has power to explain it. It has power to give hope. And the Bible says we're to fix our eyes on that, to look on that, and looking to the fact that there's a day when our suffering will end, It's something that sustains us to keep on going. In all manner, all types of suffering in our life, that is true for us. And so part of a Christian response in suffering, I think including the suffering, the pain agenda for it, is right now we know it's painful. Right now we're weeping with you. It's distressing, it's painful, but there is a day. Jesus loves you so much that he's made sure there's an end to this. And actually, Jesus doesn't say, yeah, I'm coming back at some point. He's going to hold on, keep going until then. He gives us things to help us towards them. If we're a follower of Jesus, actually, he himself, God himself, he comes to live inside of us. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us and he comforts. 
and encourages and cares and spurs us off. He helps us to keep looking forward to that hope, to keep persevering even in acute distress and pain. And he gives us each other. He doesn't say, go off as a lone ranger and do it on your own. He says, no, no, you're now part of a family. If you're a follower of Jesus, you become part of a family. We are family. That's part of our God-given identity. And we're meant to be a family who love and support and who weep with each other when we weep and cry when we need to cry, but also who celebrate when there's those tiny little victories to celebrate. We keep spurring each other on, reminding ourselves of the love of God proved on the cross and pointing forward to the sure and certain promise that every bit of suffering we experience one day will end. We will be whole and healthy and well. We will be just as God designed us to be and we'll spend eternity beholding our beautiful saviour, Jesus. This, I believe, is the hope that Jesus and Jesus uniquely can offer those who are trans, those who experience the pain of gender dysphoria. We've got to have also a hope response. So this is where I think we should start, at least, with a Christian response to transgender. You've got to start with a heart. God has genuine love and compassion towards transgender people, those with gender dysphoria, and so we as his followers should reflect the same. We will have to have a head response. God gives us an identity. He knows what's best for us. He knows who we are. He says who we are, speaks to us in our bodies, and actually is living that out, which will always be the best thing for us. Even when we can't understand how it's the best thing it is, because he knows best. And then we have the hope response that even when that is very painful in this life, there's a day coming when the pain ends. There's a day coming when we see Jesus, where he will wipe away our tears. I'd love to just quickly pray for us, and then we're going to open up to a bit of Q&A. Father God, we thank you so much that you have created us. And thank you that you love us. For every single one of us, you love us, and you love us right as we are right, right now. And God, we say we hear your heart here. We see what you say to us in your word about this topic, and we want to be people who respond rightly. We want to express your heart of love and compassion. We want to bring your loving and, and life-giving truth, and we want to bring your hope to people. And Lord, I ask particularly for anyone here for whom this is a real thing, who even right now sits with the pain of gender dysphoria. Oh, Lord God, please would you draw near with comfort and care and compassion. Please would you make yourself so real and let your love be experienced in the hearts of our brothers, our sisters, and our side as we ask. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to open the floor to Q&A. There's a mic just there and a mic just there. If you've got a question you want to ask, come up and line up. We'll take kind of one from each side. I don't have all the answers, obviously, but I will do my very best to share any wisdom I have. So don't leave me hanging. I'm not good at filling space. Someone come and be brave for us. Come and ask a first question. And if you want to ask one as well, come and join the line behind them. And we're going to go to just before half past, and then we're going to reset things as Adrian explained. I think you have got the first call. Hi. Um, when it comes to the usage of pronouns towards transgender people um, and even non-binary people, um, should, should we be using the pronouns of their natural gender, um, or the, the, the biological sex, or what they see themselves as out of respect, uh, particularly kind of the made-up pronouns like Z or Zim? Um, Great. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. That's something that Christians have really different views on. You'll see some very often unpleasant and helpful debates online. My personal view is the best way that we love someone, which I think is what we're called to do, is we use the pronouns they ask us to use. 
And I, people get worried that if you use a pronoun which doesn't line up with biological sex, you're, you're saying a lie or you're affirming people in something that's not life-giving to them. And actually, I don't think that's true. Actually, if you ask trans people, actually, what they think when someone uses their preferred pronouns, they don't assume that someone thinks, oh, yeah, they're saying that this is who I really am and they're agreeing with everything I'm doing. They just think this person actually cares about me as an individual. It keeps the conversation open. So my personal view would be that actually using the pronoun someone wants is the helpful thing. And so actually, when I begin to talk to a transgender person, I'll start, one of the early things we'll say in the conversation is, my pronouns are he, his, him. What are your pronouns? And it's just a way of showing I love you and I care about using individual and I want to acknowledge that in kind of how I speak to you, how I relate to you. Uh, yeah, over here. Hello. Um, well, thank you for that. But, um, uh, you said that the best way to live is to live your identity, but the Bible says that we are by nature sinful and that it's only when we were washed in the blood of Christ that living our identity is healthy. Um, what do I say to those who reject, or who do not want to actually listen to our point of view, um, just sort of scoff and ask me questions because they want to make fun? Yeah, it's really good. I think so. My in conversations with anyone, my thought is always, how do I show the heart of Jesus and the love of Jesus? And sometimes that does mean actually choosing not to have the argument when all you're going to have is an argument is, is personally what I would kind of do. I think you can make a big impact on someone actually, by, whereas they think you're going to be, what they would see is very unloving and very argumentative. Actually, you can just choose not to engage with that. But I think often if someone is open to engaging, you think you can have a, a healthy, constructive, loving conversation, even when there's a, a vast disagreement, or even when someone you feel is not going to like what you're going to say. I think I think humility and the attitude and the tone we do it in is really important. And also, I think asking questions. So actually, often it's helpful. We don't bring statements of this, this, and this are true. It's kind of exploring questions of, well, but what about this? And how would this work? And you're helping someone to actually think about almost kind of what's underpinning it, not just the surface thing. Because always, we should not just be saying what God says, but why he says it. You see, what God says makes sense. Funnily enough, he's a clever guy. He knows what he's doing. What he says makes sense. And if we help people understand how it makes sense, then you see the goodness of it. And sometimes you've got to dig down a bit deeper and often asking questions, but what about this? And how would that work? And would this cause a problem with that? Can I think help um, foster healthy dialogue in those situations? Helpful. Uh, yeah, over here. Um. My little understanding of LGBTQ is for equal opportunities amongst the group of people that fall into these categories. As Christians, how should we place the LGBTQ agenda? And is it godly or is there, or is there more to, to it? Um, we see banks and major corporations displaying the branding of the LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. Yes, we just have pride, don't we? And you're just in lots of rainbows, lots of kind of uh, we call corporate branding, banks and all sorts, as you say. I think it's all a really complex thing because it's not a single thing, it's not a multifaceted thing. So even you know, people talk about, we hear about the LGBTQ agenda, which I think is unhelpful language to start with. Actually, it kind of implies that people who fall into that, um, who identify as within that group are 
out to do something malicious. I just don't think actually, I don't think it's true. And I don't think we as Christians should think that. There is a small subset of people in culture who are trying to completely dissolve the idea that there are men or women or even males or females who want to completely do away with all of that. And I think there's lots of reasons, both theological and actually practical, what's good for society, why that's not helpful. Actually, they tend to not be the people who are experiencing gender dysphoria or identify as LGBT. So it's so important to separate, actually, not to assume that someone who is LGBT actually wants there to be no such thing as man or woman. And I think there is a place when we can have constructive conversation for the church to speak into the cultural conversation about things like, is there even such a thing as a man or a woman? Pride's really complex, because pride's saying all sorts of things. Part of what um, LGBT pride is saying is, it's really good that now gay and lesbian and bi and trans transgender people are treated better than they were 50 years ago, 60 years ago. It's, you know, it's celebrating the fact that whereas gay people used to be electrocuted to try and keep them from being gay, now that doesn't happen. And I, as a Christian, say we should have been the first to say this shouldn't happen, and we should be celebrating that. But also often it's saying, actually, embracing this internal identity is how I find true life. And that's the bit I think we as Christians would say, I don't think that's what the Bible says, and I think you're going to miss out if you do that. So I think it's a really complex thing, actually, to navigate, because there are different messages in pride. And we would evaluate them and want to respond to them differently. And so always, therefore, actually, nuanced discussion wherever possible to kind of separate some of those things out is helpful. But I think always, actually, it's trying to show the love of God, the compassion of God, and the goodness of what God says. God says this because it is good for you, not because he's just this guy which is like, you know, jump over these hoops, you know, dancing monkey. That's not what God's like. I made you, I know you, I know what's best for you, and here's the life-giving way. And so it's complex, but I think all those things have to be in the mix when we're engaging with pride and with kind of LGBT uh, perspectives in general. Yeah, one more over here. So you've mentioned the massive difference there is between the um, kind of cultural understanding of identity being internal and then the biblical identity and that God is working on fallen creation and transforming us to be more like Christ. So that's a massive difference in kind of cultural kind of perceptions. So... And I'm presuming that causes a lot of tension between um, when we're talking to our friends, they're going, well, you hate... So saying you don't like that means you hate me because it's hard to pull those kind of things apart. So would you say for us who are you know, walking with our gay friends or transgender friends and trying to love them, actually our role is to wait on the Holy Spirit to put his finger on stuff as and when that comes up and literally just love, love our friends, not getting into right and wrongs of debates and actually waiting for God to do that? Yeah. In part, also, it's a difficult question because culturally, the how do I find my identity is the question you're not allowed to ask. So the point where the conversation gets really heated is when you start to ask that question. So if you challenge the internal identity narrative, that's one of the most dangerous things you can do in our culture. So you're right, actually, there's a huge clash between what a Bible perspective would say and what a secular person in the street says. I think, I think in part, I'd say yes to the approach you're suggesting. Because it is only Jesus' work in someone's heart that makes any difference to anybody who's living outside of God's will, as all of us do till we come to Christ. And I think, yeah, seeking him to open opportunities. And, but again, it's, being, it's A, showing you love them even if they think you're not affirming them. It's actually people don't believe you can really love them if you don't affirm who they are as they see themselves as who they are. But actually, we get to show in how we treat people we do. So a lot of it is how we act and how we interrelate. We get to treat people according to divine identity. So to treat them and relate to them according to the fact they're loved just because of uh, the fact that God has created them rather than anything else. So I think that makes an impact. So I think we do it in our example. And I think, yeah, normally I would 
wait for their invitations to talk about it. And actually, also, the key thing is their big need, actually, is not to think about sexuality, it's to think about Jesus. Because until they believe Jesus is who he says he is, it doesn't matter what he says about sexuality or gender or any of that. And so actually, I'd always want to keep bringing the conversation back to Jesus. And literally, I do that sometimes, actually, but what about this and what's about sexuality and all sorts? I'm like, well, that doesn't really matter, does it, if Jesus isn't who he said he is? If he's not, you can ignore him. So let's actually part the sexuality stuff. That's not the thing for the time being. And let's focus on, did Jesus rise from the dead? And then if he did, then we're going to need to talk about that. But if you think he did, then you're going to have a different perspective on what he says about that. So always bringing it back to Jesus, I think, is the actual better place to start and a helpful uh, thing in conversation. Yeah, over here. Hey there. Uh, you said the body is a gift from God and that it's made imperfect. What if in the case that the body isn't exactly perfect function, say a part of the body's not working, your legs might not work, you may be blind from birth, what then? Yeah, so this is, you know, I have the Bible big story, and we said in creation everything's perfect as it should be, but then we get this problem that we corporately as humanity rebel against God, and all of us, literally every single one of us, then experience the effects of that in our body, in our minds, in all of our experiences of life. We all experience what the Bible calls brokenness and pain and suffering. So there's an explanatory story there. Where this comes into this particular conversation is in intersex conditions. So I mentioned there are some people, a very small number of conditions, where there's genuine ambiguity about whether biological sex is male or female. Most intersex conditions, actually, it's clear someone is either male or female, but there's a small level of variation from the expected pattern uh, for the physical body for that. But in some cases, there is a a genuine... um, uh, a genuine variation and a genuine ambiguity about whether there's male or female sex. But I don't think it's true, what some people say is, that disproves the idea that God makes us as male or female, or it disproves the idea that God speaks to us about who we are through our bodies. I don't think intersex is a third sex, as some people say it is, because always it's very clearly at least a combination of male or female. And I think that that, like so many things every single one of us experience, is part of living in an imperfect world, which is because things are not as they're meant to be because we've rebelled against God, but then again, there's the wonderful hope and promise, things will be put back as they are. And so the biblical worldview is unique in the fact the Bible can explain why it is that there are things we experience, we know they shouldn't be that way, but they are. The Bible can actually explain that in a way, in a way that I don't think any other worldview in the world can. Andrew, thank you so much. Guys, what we'd love to do is do two things right now. It might be that you have a question And actually, it's a question that you don't want to ask through a microphone in front of several hundred people. Okay, that could be be you. Andrew's going to come off the stage now. Andrew, if you go and stand where those guys are, uh, he'd love to chat with you, and you can have a little conversation. And so Andrew's very happy to do that. It might be that this subject raises for you a desire. You know what? I quite like someone to pray for me, to stand with me. I'm not even sure I can articulate exactly how I feel Or maybe you would just like someone to put their arm around you and pray with you. It might not even be specifically about transgender. It might raise issues about identity, which all of us are facing. And it might be you'd love somebody to pray with you about that, have somebody to chat to. So there'll be some ministry team guys. They're wearing red, blue, and green caps. And they'll be over here by this other microphone where people have been standing. So if you'd like to be prayed for, please make your way over here to my left. And if you've got questions, maybe you didn't get your question asked, answered, but you'd like to ask your question or you haven't come up and asked a question yet, but you'd like to chat to Andrew, he's going to be over here to my right. Okay, why don't we finish our time together by putting our hands together and thanking Andrew Bunt. Thank you so much. Well done. God bless you.
Okay. The rest of you, I'd just ask you whether quietly you could make your way out of the tent and begin your conversations after you've gone out of the tent because we're going to be chatting to people and we'll be praying for people. God bless you. See you here same time tomorrow.